Mike Sharman considers himself to be a creative and an entrepreneur. He used both of these traits to build a successful million-dollar social media agency called Retroviral, which is responsible for making more brands go viral than any other agency in Africa. After successfully launching and then scaling Retroviral, Mike sold a majority stake in the business to a large corporate. That's when the gaps in his financial knowledge started to affect his role as CEO, the stability of the acquisition, and put the day-to-day -day running of the business into a precarious position. In this episode, Mike and I talk about his financial shortcomings, how he muddled through the acquisition and the impressive turnaround that followed. Before we dive into this conversation, I want to ask you to please do me a favor and rate or review It's Not Over on your favorite podcasting app right now. These small but meaningful gestures from you go a long way in helping me produce a top class podcast that teaches us all the lessons we love to learn. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Okay, welcome back to It's Not Over. This week, I'm sitting with a very old friend of mine, Mike Sharman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining How's me. Nick from the other side of the world. Thanks for having me, man. I know, what a crazy time to be alive. So you are an exceptionally creative person. You are also an entrepreneur. You're also an author and you're a good storyteller. So I think we're in for some interesting talks no today. Pressure, eh? So why don't you set the scene for me? No, no pressure. Yeah, yeah, I've teed you up really high. All we can do is go down from here. So set me, set me the scene. What business are we talking about? What was going on? And then we'll roll from there. So yeah, I think we're going to talk about Retroviral today. Retroviral is a branded content agency. We've made more brands go viral globally than any other agency in Africa. But as is the premise of your show, all things that go up must come down. That's correct. Okay, and uh, so tell me a bit more about the business. It's a traditional agency. Uh, like, how do you make money as a company? Well, we kind of focused by going into a really specific niche when we started. Like I'm a huge fan of bootstrapping businesses. Also just really leaned into influencer marketing before influencer marketing was a cliche. So I had a background in PR, I had a background in uh, wanting to be an actor. So for me, storytelling was a natural kind of fit. And back in the early 2000s, influencers were journalists. If you want to sell something or you want to promote your product or service, the best way to evangelize is from one to one. And uh, if you needed to do the one to one to many, you would use the intermediary of media. And uh, you as a, an ex-media guy yourself, you were bombarded with press releases and just pretty archaic ways of communicating. And uh, over the years, we we effectively got retroviral to a place where think about that one-to-one-to-many, but speak to the intermediary as if they're human beings, not as if they're channels. And yeah, in 2010, we launched Retroviral, which uh, focused really on amplification of content through influencer channels before there were influencers. And off the back of that, you couldn't really buy media on Facebook. You couldn't buy media on YouTube. You couldn't serve pre-rolls. The world that we live in today, where we're bombarded every time we open a piece of content, that didn't exist back in the day. So we started playing in that very specific niche side of marketing and uh, worked a lot with agencies and with brands. And then over the years, we started working much more directly with brands themselves until eventually we started becoming the lead creative agency from a strategic and executional perspective. So we come up with the idea, we write the script, we then either produce the content or we work with production companies to make TV commercials or long form feature pieces of content. And uh, most recently, we've actually created a, our first sports documentary. So the world of content is really quite malleable. And I think for today's discussion, 
back in 2018, it didn't look like retroviral was going to be able to continue at one stage. So you, you go through these peaks and troughs. And fortunately, uh, still here in 2022, here to tell the tales. So before we dive into the near-death business experience, just so that I have this right, retroviral started as an agency that connected brands to influencers and gave influencers access to brands and vice versa. And you got paid as kind of a middle business. Yeah, effectively, we were, connect those we were kind of like an early digital PR agency. I think that's probably the best way to, okay. to frame it. Cool. And then so out of necessity and seeing a gap in the markets, you grew and then realized that you could actually do a full through the line offering where you'd come up with a creative, write the scripts, shoot the whole thing, do the buying, get the ads in front of people, connect the influencers. And then you became a fully fledged agency. And was that at around the time that we're going to be talking about 2018? Yeah, I'd say just before that, we started uh, winning one or two okay. pieces of business that made that the evolution and the natural next step. Also, if we were to survive and to be um, able to stand alone you couldn't rely on being a partner to bigger agencies you have to start working directly with brands and i think that's kind of mm. where the power struggle is right like there's certain guaranteed opportunities to work and when you bite the hand that feeds there's uh, sometimes an opportunity for you not to exist yes okay and so then a little bit more in the nitty-gritty uh, how big is the business at this time in 2018 how many clients any numbers you can share are always useful to tee us up for the the big near-death experience 2018 probably six to eight Staff members, probably okay. 10 plus clients, revenue wise, probably million dollars kind of perspective. Okay, great. And then what happened? So in 2015, I'd actually sold a majority stake to a larger corporate and uh, became part of this group. And uh, there were a whole bunch of kind of perceived opportunities. And I think off the back of that's one of those situations where you, know, you go into a marriage being positive and, and being hopeful for the future. And, and sometimes they're just isn't the right kind of rapport between those two partners. And I think that based on the back of that transaction and that exercise, it was a really tough time because there was a little bit of uh, incongruous nature between the two parties. And when people ask me, would you do things differently? My answer is actually unequivocally no, because that for me was my MBA of life. Between 2015 and 2018, I went on a three-year university of life, MBA, a finance degree, and it basically helped propel my business acumen to a much better place. Okay, so you sold a majority stake, 51? More, 70%. Okay, 70%. So 2015, you then sell the majority stake and immediately roses, marriage is fantastic, you start growing and scaling with these guys or what? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the realization is that when you do a due diligence, there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily within the numbers. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff, especially in the brand space and in the creative space, the spreadsheets don't always do the business justice in terms of what the value is. And I think that, you know, retroviral in those like five years into its life cycle, it was a very volatile business. It was project heavy. It was retainer light. And off the back of that, it made me realize I actually have to understand the granular detail of this business. For me, I'd always been more predominantly strategic and creative as opposed to ever evolving that financial acumen. So for me, I was really put into a position where it's time to start being able to be fluent in spreadsheet. Otherwise, you're going to come up short. 
thought. And for me, it was, it was an incredible journey being able to understand margins, understand the science of what we actually charge. And I think that entrepreneurs take pricing for granted. And so often when those of us who start businesses, we've come from a a position before, whether it was working at a company or working in in some kind of uh, product or service business, and you almost use your experience of pricing without really understanding the science of the sale. And I think off the back of that, that really made me understand what is my actual staff member costing me per hour? What do the desks cost? What is the the, um, depreciation on a computer? And I think that there's a whole bunch of stuff in in so many different... um, euphemisms and analogies and EBITDAs and EBITs and and what are these things and and I think that for so many entrepreneurs we we don't take the time to ever really understand that side of things and for me it's it's an incredible analogy that I've heard a personal trainer actually use it's the same with 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 working out and and putting the right kind of nutrition into your into your body. If you're looking at the types of, the amount of sugar that you're putting into your system, the amount of carbohydrates, it's very important that's going to have an actual tangible impact on your health and wellness. The same with your business. If you aren't aware of the granular detail of the rands, the cents, the cash flow that you're putting into your business, that business can uh, undergo a bit of terminal damage. The first thing that strikes me is very vulnerable and honest, and I appreciate you saying it, but you were five years into this business and you've admitted you didn't really understand the finances very yeah. well. That's quite a thing. How how are you running the company without understanding it well? Was it just like kind of happened to work out without the detail? You know what well, I mean? I mean, I did have a business partner at the time who um, exited on transaction. Okay. So we basically had roles okay. in the responsibilities. But I can definitely say that the okay. financial acumen was my blind spot at the time. And I think that it it forced me to okay. stand alone. I was the jockey. So I remained in the game going forward. And for me, it really mm-hmm. did. It was it was the part that I was always afraid of. I think so many of us can be good at money in our personal and or our business side of things, and then not so great in the vice versa. For me, I was definitely a, a shrewd, personal kind of saver and investor but it, when it came to business it was just like let's go out I'm the, the the sell 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 like hell guy so that bring the cash flow in and bring the top line in and then we'll make it work once the cash flow is in the business I think it's it's also interesting and easy to look back and go oh I should have from day one also been involved in the finances but truth be told that's why you have co-founders right that's that's why it is the way it is because I'm not financially minded either but four exits or three exits down the line you got to fucking learn so you do but ask me about that in my first startup there would have been no chance I would never have understood a cash flow statement or a balance sheet so I, I think those of people listening who don't understand stuff and have a co-founder who do that's fine like it is also okay, but when you need to level up to that next stage in your business, the CEO has got to know. You've got to have a good understanding. Not asking you to be an accountant, right? But you do have to have a very good understanding of that. It's, it's imperative if you're looking at scaling up, if you're looking at, at investment, mm. if you're looking at OPM, other people's money. Like you say, the CEO can't just be one dimensional. The CEO has to be 360, you have to be integrated. So you have to go, like when you're a kid and you go to a tutor, you have to find a money tutor. I think that's the most important thing as being the, the kind of leader in the business. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. So I want to come back to the money tutor thing. But tell me, how did your lack of financial grasps, and I mean, I'm, I'm being harsh, I know that you understand the finances, but how did your lack of detail around this stuff affect the acquisition? Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting, like we changed our financial year ends to be aligned with this corporate group. And then suddenly we had um, 
one of those large consulting firms that became our auditors. And then all of a sudden, like you have to be fluent in finance. If you're not, you're going to be asked a lot of really tough questions. And one, you'll look silly. And uh, two, it's not just about ego. It's about the actual impact and the evolution of you. And I, I remember sitting in a few board meetings with one of these management consulting companies and explaining to them the difference between selling a, a Coca-Cola at a, at a corner shop versus selling advertising services and how you have to realize that revenue and how not all projects are alike. So a project could be two months, it could be three months. And so, so ultimately, the cost of sale and the, the recognition of that cost of sale varies project to project. And I think the way that they were interrogating me a lot of the times around those questions when it came to the annual audit, for me, it was important to level up so that I could have those conversations and I could articulate what we did a lot better. As a result, it also forced me to question the value proposition of what we were putting to market. I think it's it's one thing about being able to define that from a comms perspective. And you asked me about the five-year journey to get to a space around pricing. I think similarly, it was also a five-year journey to actually understand what we were selling. Because as we'd grown from this niche offering, we got to a space where we ultimately defined we are a business that sells four pillars. And back in 2015, and even now in 2022, it's the same thing. We sell strategy, we sell a content creation, which is our product. And that content creation can be social media posts, it can be TV commercials, it can be white papers, it can be PR to an extent. Then the third pillar is, is content dissemination. And content dissemination is how you connect that content to eyeballs. So it's uh, paid, earned, shared, or owned. Those are like the four kind of key ones within our space. And then the fourth pillar is reporting. And that was the, the aspect and the nuance that was very important because reporting shows you that you've delivered on your strategic objectives. So pillar one and four connect quite tangibly. And also in our space, Sometimes marketers sell product and service on smoke and mirrors and we could actually showcase that our KPIs were X and our uh, reporting indicated we hit X or we hit greater than X or less than X. And it, it gave us a really good opportunity to continue to justify our value. And by overlaying sales data with comms data, we could show scientifically how we make an impact on our clients' businesses. This familiar jingle lets you know that this is a short advert for those entrepreneurs listening. Do you feel guilty when you're at home with your family that you should be working? Do you also feel guilty when you're at work that you should be at home? I get it. It's tough to build something meaningful, but I don't believe in balance. That's rubbish. I believe that work is part of life and life is part of work. And I want to help you integrate those two things more effectively. If you think you need a coach to help you find this integration, then contact me and let's talk. Visit www.nharry.com. That's www.nharry.com. Let me help you find the integration that you crave. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. That is a very valuable proposition. And I, I understand completely why a larger corporate would want to buy a more agile like startup agency in that regard, especially when you're merging those two things, like the execution and the reporting to prove that it's not bullshit. But I'm still a little bit unclear about this near-death experience. So you sell 70% of the business and... When was the problem? When did the problem arise? Well, I think after that first audit, like we realized that there was some revenue that was realized incorrectly. 
and realize after the first audit right isn't the, those are famous words after yeah. the first audit <laughs> ah yeah. shit yeah. i was just uh, i was just sitting there at that first audit you know um <laughs> and i and i, I think yeah. ultimately the interrogation of certain elements there were a couple projects that had been realized incorrectly and i think that there was nothing malicious and ultimately there was nothing that was intended to almost prop the numbers up but the reality was as you had one end of financial year and then moving to a new financial year there were certain elements that shouldn't have been in the prior one not in the future year and vice versa and i think that off the back of that once i'd explained the differences between selling advertising and cokes we got to a stage where i actually realized like these are the issues in terms of what was recognized and i think that the conversations around that were they were very transparent and they were very honest in terms of saying like if we've made any mistakes like let's almost uh, repent for those mistakes and let's figure out a way forward and i think a lot of times within that situation uh, ego does get in the way and you have the ability to really like not have head on conversations and not articulate yourself in the best possible way one from a naivety uh, another thing from like lack of insight into finance once again and i think that's where a lot of problems occur and it's natural to become defensive and to say Oh, well, you've done nothing wrong. But in actual fact, when you look at it, like there's certain things that weren't best practice. And even though it's not malicious, mm -hmm. it's not the best practice situation for that deal. And I think that's what uh, created a little bit of uh, a little bit of headbutting within that space. And for me, I carried on down this route for a couple of years and just wanted to keep winning business and make sure that the business was still growing at, at a great rate. Um, and also that key insight of us being too project heavy and needing an annuity model, like that for me was incredibly important because selling projects is a different mindset from selling retainers. And I needed to go down this route of being able to close some of those retainer deals. And it's almost like a different type of muscle. It's like being a bodybuilder and then having to be a sprinter, like a different kinds of of techniques required. I think ultimately having to pick up 30, 40 grand a month retainers, closing those deals, it's a hard slog. It's the same kind of slog you would put in for maybe a million rand project, but then ultimately that thing has to sustain for a 12 month period, 24 month period, get through the first 12 months and get the client to re-sign, all those kinds of elements. And I think eventually when it got to about 2017, it, there was one stage where I was just, I was ready to throw in the towel and just say, you know what, it's, uh, it's too much. Like I should actually just walk away from this program. And so many people had said to me, like a lot of trusted advisors from various industries that I'd had a lot of one-on-ones and they said, listen, you're the jockey. Why don't you just walk away? Like if this thing folds and if it ceases to exist, who actually cares? And for me, I think that Ultimately, there was a bit of ego involved because I don't want to fail. But at the same time, like, I believe that this is an amazing business and I didn't want to just walk away from it. And I also just, there's something ethical for me that closing one shop to open another shop of the same offering with a different badge and a different brand, like, that just feels a little bit hollow. Okay. There's so much to unpack there. The first thing that I want to go back to is you hit your first financial year end with the acquisition behind you and... The numbers didn't line up. Let's say your year was two months shorter than it should have been or you had projected it was going to be and you hadn't amortized the, the revenue effectively according to these new accounting practices. And then the big corporate was like, well, you overvalued yourself. Perfect. You lied to us. Yeah. This this is not what we paid for. Where's the money? Well, there's there's certain details I can't go into based on NDA. Sure. sure. 
but on a high level, like that's what happened, yeah. right? That's, is that's you thought you had more revenue. Yeah, you, you, they thought you had more revenue than you actually had because the year was shorter and you amortized incorrectly, which let me be clear, I didn't know what amortize meant until I started opening up physical retail stores for my sock company and my accountant was like, don't worry, we can amortize the stock and the shop fitting over 12 months and then it doesn't look like it cost you 100 grand. I was like... What the hell does amortize mean? Like so uh, these, yeah, these are not things that you know inherently when you're building a startup. What you know as a startup is I need to fucking make a sale. Exactly. And then you do. And then your business rolls and you're like, hey, I got something of value. I'm going to sell yeah. it. You and can then high it five a sale. You can't high five amortization or depreciation. Exactly. Okay. So that makes sense to me. So then you start grinding on this annuity model because it is more sensible to have recurring income than one-off projects that you can scale a business more consistently. Also, the first of the month panicking. How am I going to pay staff in 24 days time? Such a key thing, right? Starting from zero. And it's something I think about a lot as somebody who does speaking as a profession and all these things that start from zero. There's no annuity in those service-based businesses. A lot of it has to do with one client today that might not come back tomorrow. So you then start building this annuity and you figure that it's harder than it was to do projects in the beginning, right? Is that what kind of happened? Yeah, I mean, also it's like, it's personality-based. For me, like I love the thrill yeah. of breaking the internet, making shit go viral. Like that's, my innate like i love making brands famous it mm. takes a lot of energy you explode and also brands can't do that always on they do that like maybe once a quarter once every six months so that's like a great energy and it's a it feels a lot more personable the problem is that like, it doesn't make business sense so the important thing is what are the things you can sell that you can be paid every day for social media account management, creating content for those social channels, responding to complaints and queries on social media. These are all the bread and butter elements where some brands will have taken those in-house, but some medium-sized businesses still need the support because they can't afford to upstaff that or up-resource that internally. And that just made the most sense. That's where our, our, our daily bread and butter came from. A very practical question. How did you, at the time, figure out what products you had that could become annuity? Because you don't want to like shard away and become an entirely new business. You want to layer and stack on what you already know. So did you bring in external people? Did the, the, the acquirers help you? Who helped you figure this out? No, I mean, we had, we had one or two brands that were kind of tapping into the key offering as it was. So there were one or two small brands that we were doing social media for. Even from 2010 in those early days, okay. um, there were one or two brands that re resulted in us getting some uh, retainers. So it, it wasn't the first rodeo. It wasn't the, the first time going to market with these, these products and services. It was just an opportunity to look back and say, kind of retrospectively, what are the things that we can do as a repeat or a step function? What are the things that we could offer on an ad hoc or tactical basis. And I think we were actually quite fortunate from those early days in 2010, having a mix of like alcohol brand cruises, where it's like, that's the kind of always on stuff. And then the Nando's of the world and their amplification ad hoc needs. So those things were already existing within our ecosystem. It was more just about formalizing which of these makes the most sense. And exactly to your point, which of those resources, having one or two community managers, do we need more community managers? Mm -hmm. Do we need more designers? Do we outsource design? When does it the tipping point come in to actually have a full-time designer in-house? So it was a mixture of, of full-time and permalance and freelance 
to bring those elements together. The, the corporate's obsession was to bring a, a cost center of finance in-house as opposed to having a third-party bookkeeper. And for me, that was the most useful and important integration because that's kind of where the learning of finance really commenced from. When you get that um, uh, unified back office right, it can work really well. To be frank, I've seen it go wrong so often that it's something I would never touch again with the barge bowl. But at this point, there's so much still to unpack on your founder feelings, which I'm going to get to now. But post-acquisition, was there a lot of pressure on growth and scaling and revenue targets, or were they just kind of leaving you to your own devices? Yeah, I mean, there they became monthly management reports and board packs, which, yo, that's a thought of amortization was a swear word, <laughs> board pack for someone who wasn't a natural finance guy. Wow. And um, also the level of detail within that, that you almost would need a full week's prep to get to that board pack ready stage. And, and I think that there were a few months of just letting the relationship slot in, figuring out where we're at. But the reality is, is that management accounts and board packs show very quickly how you're doing as a business. How are you performing profitability-wise? How are you performing top-line revenue-wise? And it exposes you very quickly to where your, your actual weaknesses are. And in those first few months, obviously, I'm very oblivious to that stuff and not understanding where the stresses and the pain points were. And once I realized that, well, this is where the, this is where the red flag is. You got to jump in, son. You got to understand what's going on here. It's, it's something that I've learned through many years of screwing it up and Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, summed it up really well. He said that when I stop hearing from startups, I know that they're dead. Startups that are doing well, businesses that are performing, want to do board packs. They want to show their finances. They want to tell people how they're doing. Even if they're struggling, they want to show you that they're fixing the problem. But startups that are clueless, don't know where the problem is and don't know how to solve it, don't know how to tell a good story around that. And just speaking of board packs, I think having done board packs up the wazoo in my life, what I've learned is board packs are actually about stories. Mm. And you can think, if you're listening to this and you've never put one together, the finances are the start of the story. They're the facts of your story. The rest is, okay, well, how many people have you hired to fix this problem? And who's got what skills? And how's this client performing? It's all about narrative. And the CEO's job is to tell a good story. And if you can do that, no matter how shitty the board meeting is, you leave going, okay, that was a good story, bro. Let's go fix it now. And that's what I've learned about board packs, right? And I think that's, that's kind of where the excitement around finance actually came into my life. It's like, I love research in order to develop a strategy to go and build a narrative to sell a brand and to create a TV commercial and develop the insight. Like board packs and management reports provide you with the research to pull out those little key insights. Ah, oh, this product or service, we smashed it this month. We were up 100%. Why? Because the market actually needed this thing influencers are the next big deal so we need to actually put a name on it and we need to tell the market about it because that's why we're getting more leads around this specific line item and i think there's so many people within a board level they don't always understand the granular detail of what you're you're serving that's why you have to be able to sell a succinct story and that narrative like you say and housing it within that that kind of onion is so important. It's something you've said that I've thought about for a long time around learning things that I previously thought I didn't like or I sucked at. And finance is one of them. History is another one. History, I, I hated history at school, but it's because I was learning in the context of school, not in the context of 
learning the history tells us about the future too. And now obsessive about business history and where things come from and why they exist the way they are and rules, same with finance, right? And you can put the finances of your business in the context of a good story and the good next movement, then you probably will like finances. I studied business economics at school and I hated it. In fact, I didn't get my degree because I failed Ecos 101. Now, however, macroeconomics is imperative to the things that I build and which country I live in and how I move around the world because it matters. So what you're showing is that context was key around your obsession with finance. You just didn't have the right context pre-acquisition. Post-acquisition, the context was like, holy shit, now I understand how this unlocks the story for me. Also, it helps having a gun to your head. I mean, that'll unlock a lot of value. (laughs) (laughs) So much context in that, right? Okay, so I want to talk about the acquisition itself and how your motivation changed post-acquisition because you went from a majority shareholder founder, CEO, to a minority founder, CEO, with big acquisition partners who are now telling you that what you've built is bad. Yeah, that's a great summation of that. You've you've clearly been in this movie before. Um, So, I mean, you can relate, Nick. I mean, I think you still feel like you're in your own space and you are the boss, but it feels like you're a faux boss or a quasi boss. And and the fact is that you're just another employee and you're just a a large number or a small number in a large organization. And as much as your staff and your team respect you for the autonomy they have, they don't realize how much uh, dictatorship you have or you suppressed to um, behind the scenes. And I think that that's a, that's yeah. a real awakening. And, and I think that experience teaches you, like, what do you want from your next move? What do you want from your next chapter? Because I think that entrepreneurs think in different ways. Like, we don't ever think it's the end. We don't ever think that this is our end point. There's always going to be new projects or new divisions or new opportunities. So for us, there's always a beginning, but there's never an end. To sum that up, you weren't unmotivated. You'd sold this business and now you kind of gunned your head, shitting yourself, and that pushed you further. It didn't demotivate you because there's a risk, right, that when you see this thing you've spent five years building, actually someone point a light at it and go, hmm, there's some cracks here. There's a risk that you pull away. And you didn't, you leaned in. And I think also, once again, it comes back to ego is that I didn't want to fail. So I was like, I'm going to go and hunt new business. I'm going to convert more retainers. I'm still going to have the passion projects and the creative that I love working on. And I'm going to try and start adding one or two key resources into the business. So it just, it felt like a whirlwind. And I think that there's probably a few black holes in my memory from that period of my life. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was PTSD coupled with creativity, mixture of really good people people working with and new clients and new evolution. So it was it was like warfare, really, with, with a dash of creativity. You strike me as someone who's got a positivity bias, Mike, <laughs> and that's uh, a good thing at some points. But I'm going to probe you a little bit more on this. Um, your co-founder has left and exited the business. You're dealing with this new brand of accounting, new growth targets, and you're trying to rebuild and refine the annuity income. How's your mental health throughout this? I mean, are you married at this point with kids what's the the impact on your personal life with this massive change in business yeah i mean i went through a i went through a divorce just prior to this whole process so that was ah yeah, you, you quietly left that yeah. off the, the bill. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that was one to leave out. And then, obviously, during the during the acquisition, then I, I had a new partner and things were intense. Like, I think a lot of the time I wanted to prove not only to myself, but to the world that I wasn't 
just a creative. Like I'd never come from a traditional ad agency. I'd worked in, in PR and comms agencies before, both in South Africa and in London. But I never wanted to be labeled the arty farty that didn't understand business. Because I think that ultimately for me, stories are important. And I think the, the legacy of that story and not being boxed as a creative, like I always just felt that so, it's such a terrible term, especially in, in our industry. Like the fact that you can be boxed as a creative and it makes people that are analytical feel like they're not allowed to come to that party. And, and like I say to my team, of whether you're a client service person, whether you're in finance, whether you are the managing director, come to the brainstorm because so many people add so many layers and it's generally the more analytical people who can spot the premise and the insight that's going to ultimately become the little kernel or the nugget that you're going to build your ad campaign around. Also, some of the best designers I've worked with are terrible at writing, you know, and, and it's sometimes it's the, the writers who actually can write the creativity into um, execution. So for me, I think ultimately I did want to prove to the world that I could be a, a good business person and that I had the chops to be able to manage this whilst going through all this insanity. And it was, it was, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There were dark days. There were like rock bottom. And fortunately for me, like, I mean, I've always, like you say, I've always trying to find that uh, glass half full moment. So for me, I've, I've always been fortunate that I've, I haven't had to deal with depression or I've never kind of resulted in going to hit the bottle or take drugs or ever have feelings of um, of suicide or anything like that. So I'm grateful for, for never having gone through those places. But I can tell you that I went through some pretty despairing sort of places. And uh, my current wife right now, if it wasn't for her, I mean, I think that I really had that support at home, which was incredibly helpful. I want to jump to this finance money thing because it is an interesting one that I think a lot of small businesses struggle with and founders are nervous to ask. And like, if you're not a financially minded person, you struggle to know what you don't know and where to start. And even just Googling something is, is like overwhelming. So you mentioned a money tutor. What does that look like? Did you get one of those? What is that? And why did you say that? My money tutor was actually born out of my finance head. So I had one finance head that we, we hired after the acquisition. She actually didn't last for too long. I think she realized, shit, I don't know if I want to be in this situation. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. But the yeah. second hire, she's still my head of finance today and she's incredible. She's also very patient with me, especially when I get to ask the most ridiculous questions. And I just said to her, I said, listen, we're in this together. Like... I don't know the most about money. Okay, I don't know a hell of a lot. So I'm going to need you to be a little bit patient with me. And I'm going to need you to explain every single line item to me from this management account. So I want to know. Cool. Let's talk about OPEX. Let's talk about all the actual operational expenses that we have in this business. Everything from telephone lines to insurance. What are the things that are mission critical? And what are the things that we can strip out? And then going through everything from the, the salaries, the... Uh, various cost of sale elements. Why are we spending this on this project? Why are we going through that? Why do we need these things? And I think that as a business, you can fall into a dangerous territory of just signing up to subscriptions of things because there was money at the time and you just signed on board. And yeah, sure, there are mission critical things like with Google Drive. We've been on the drive since 2015, 2014. So that's where our cloud exists. 
But also, you can get lazy and forget to delete the actual accounts of people who've left. So you can suspend them, but then Google's still charging you for that. You know, it's an extra $10, $15 a month. And it doesn't add up until you've got about 10 or 15 accounts that are dormant or suspended. And once you start doing that exercise, and it's something that I recommend doing like once a year, once every 18 months, go through all your subscriptions and what are they for? Like, do you need a Microsoft Office subscription? Most people don't now because of Google Docs and the free opportunities that you have off those sorts of drive opportunities. And like, you can start interrogating those things. This credit card has expired. Do we have to sign up for the service again? Yes or no? And I think when you get to that stage, you can actually be a lot smarter about your expenses. Even when it comes to things about insurance, interrogate your brokers, interrogate, interrogate your, your suppliers. Why have we gone up 10%? Why haven't we gone up 5%? Most of the time, those suppliers, they will drop you down to keep you because once again, you're their annuity income. The the thing that I, like, I think it's important to mention on this particular approach to business because it's popular at the moment to be growth or scarcity mindset, abundance or scarcity. I think it's an important observation that interrogating expenses isn't about scarcity. What that does is it provides you with the ammunition to become growth focused. It's not a bad thing to look at your expenses and go, is this person pulling their weight? Is this thing necessary? Can we get rid of it? Because it frees up the money to do the cool shit in the business. So I don't want startup founders to hear this and go, oh, Mike's a scarcity guy. No, it's not. It's actually not about that. It's about knowing where your cents are so that you can spend them in the right place, yeah. I think. And it is an important observation. Imagine you can save 20 to 30 grand a month off the things that you don't need. Like that's another resource. That's another smart junior designer or community manager or someone that can really add value to your business to help you sell more. So once again, it starts leading you to more of an abundant space just by some smart uh, decisions and, and culling things that are unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. And the other observation that I want to make that I think you highlight and it's a good um, philosophical debate is there's two things that you are that have become exceptionally cool in the last 10 years of building things. The first is an entrepreneur and the second is a creative. Those two words have become independently very cool. Like you said, analytical finance people want to be creative and corporate people want to be entrepreneurs. And I think that the observation I want to make is that it's okay if you are creative to be financially minded. And it's okay if you're financially minded to have some creativity. And in fact, I firmly believe that it's the smashing together of unexpected things that make people interesting. Creatives who are only creatives need to start diversifying. Accountants who are only accountants need to start diversifying. And not I don't mean their work, I mean their thinking, their research, their discovery of the world, because businesses are looking for generalists that are experts, not specialists that can only do one thing. And I think you kind of illustrate that really well. Thank you. And I think it also the, the thing that you always promote and evangelize yourself is curiosity. You think you can't you can't teach that, right? There's so many things that you can learn by being curious. Like you can teach yourself how to dev or to design or to do a spreadsheet just from being curious. Yep. And I think that that's ultimately it, right? The more well-rounded, it's almost like the modern version of the Renaissance man and woman. It's like you've got the ability to be educated. You have the ability to upskill yourself from an education perspective using the internet. And you can learn anything you need to from a YouTube video or tutorial. And I think that is a, it's incredibly powerful space of civilization that we're in. We use the internet and social media to really numb ourselves. You yourself had tweeted in the past, like why would you spend 
a binge session watching 10 episodes of 10 hours worth of series when you could spend 10 hours writing a business plan, writing a first structure of a manuscript. Like there's so much stuff we can do with our time. As busy as we claim to be, there's a scarcity of side hustle time surrounded by content dumbing and numbingness. Absolutely agree with that. I mean, one of my favorite TikTok accounts is actually a spreadsheet lady. She teaches people how to do better at spreadsheets and she turned her TikTok account into a seven-figure business in 12 months throughout COVID. So TikTok's a place for you to go and do cool things. It doesn't have to be our only creatives on TikTok or only young people. I think the diversity and thinking and philosophy that you bring to all your businesses and the creative work you do is so key. And that's because you are an expert generalist. And that phrase has only recently entered my lexicon over the last like three or four years. We briefly mentioned the idea of failure. It's something I talk about a lot. It's something that obviously this whole show is is based on, that near-death experience. So how do you feel and deal with failure? And when it was presented to you in this business, what was your reaction to it? Like, how did you respond? For me, I like to battle failure. So I like to look at the various different war tactics, how to surround it and how to manipulate it or look at ways in which I can create a creative new problem solve to the binary problem that I'm facing. So for me, when the business was in a in a position where so many of these individuals who I had spoken to, I'd spoken to people who'd sold agencies, who had sold and bought back. Uh, I spoke to people who sold and had good experiences, people who sold and had poor experiences. I, I kind of did the, the standard entrepreneur thing, interview interview, 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 and experiment. And I think that's the one thing that having been on Alpha Code last year, it really just taught me, always continue to interview, even when your business feels like it's starting to gain success and scale. You're never too big, you're never too successful to stop interviewing. And I think that comes back the, the full 360 on curiosity. So for me, had all these interviews, had spoke to people, some of them were like, just, just do a moonlight runner, just close the door, open a new shop, do the thing. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get through this. So I started doing research on investor decks. And for me, I looked at a whole bunch of different industries, everything from Facebook to Slack, all the way through to WPP and Omnicom uh, sort of businesses, which are more traditional advertising agency and the kind of space and the kind of acquirers and investors that would suit my skill set. And um, I, I put together almost like a hybrid deck, just in terms of what we offer with a mixture of service and product, the tech insights, the skills, etc. And by Putting this uh, deck together, I went on a mission and said, listen, I'm going to buy this business back and I'm going to grow the thing and we're just going to absolutely evolve and I'm going to make it happen. And yeah, I mean, I think this was probably the biggest game of poker of my life and managed to... Um, win that hand. And obviously, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing it. It was a few years of absolute intensity and self-doubt. And is the failure going to win? Am I going to get knocked out in the first round? And ultimately, um, yeah, Retroviral is now a business that is co-owned by myself and my business partner, Shaga Susulu. He uh, took a punt on me, so I'm forever grateful for that involvement and that relationship. And then since 2018, we've been working together. Uh, the business has... 100% grown in revenue, 50% increase in profits. We're working with some of the best brands, not just in South Africa, but in the world. We've made more stuff go viral in the last three years than we had in the first seven years. So yeah, I mean, I just, I think we're in such an awesome space. Uh, we've been able to work with clients who treat us like partners, not as master slave uh, ad agency kind of clients. And I think we're in a really 
good sweet spot right now where we are too big for the small agencies and we're too small for the big agencies so we tend to play in a space where less procurement less red tape and we also get to work with people that don't have to rely on third parties to make a decision on whether we are the right fit with them there's so much that's linked to our relationships the shit I put on Twitter, the stuff that I say at talks that I do, the stuff that I put in books that I put out. And now I get to work with people that actually respect that expert generalism that we bring to the party. I want you to take me back to the precise moment you approached your acquirers and said to them, fuck this, I'm out. <laughs> it, it actually had been a, a few meetings prior. There were, there were a few suitors. I'd had a few conversations. For me, I'm kind of heart on sleeve kind of character. So I'm going to bring it up in a coffee meeting pretty quickly and say, hey, this is where I'm at. Um, my current situation and relationship is a little bit fraught. I'd love to be able to buy this thing back and move forward. And that's kind of where some of the conversation started. And there were one or two other suitors where we went down a DD approach. We had a conversation. There were some figures being looked at. And ultimately, in those conversations, we weren't being valued as a digital agency. We were being valued as a traditional comms agency. And we just couldn't get the valuation that would make sense. I would just... Um, swap one master for the next and for me it just didn't make sense mm. and i'm launching my new book this week at naked in morningside where i do a lot of my writing it's a small coffee shop for your international listeners and for me i, I had coffee with uh, sugar i hadn't seen him in a, in a few months and uh, we we'd done some work together over the years and i just said to him where i was at and i told him my predicament and i said you know i've got this investor deck and it wasn't even an angling for him to be an investor. I mean, this was really just a, a pretty non-agenda-based coffee. And he said to me, well, I'll put the cash in. Let's do it. And it was just like that. And I think, you know, that for me is such an important insight is that we hold so much stuff to ourselves and we hold so much stuff back in, in life. You should talk more about your, your struggles and your successes because the more you talk about it, the more you'll have dots connected. You and I can have conversations over WhatsApp and you'll be like, hey man, I'm thinking about this, why don't you do that? And if I hadn't verbalized that and articulated that, I'd be sitting on something that you potentially had the mining gold for and vice versa. And, and for me, I think that sometimes stuff just comes up in a random conversation when you don't even think about it. And, and I think it's important not to just be braggy on social and it's not, it's important not to be overly vulnerable because sometimes people will, will start pitying you because you're putting only your negative stuff online. So I'm a huge fan of, of promoting good and positive and healthy debate in the online space. And for your close group of friends, that's when you can really delve into the vulnerability side of things. But in this instance, me just putting my, putting my heart on my sleeve and putting my thoughts on the line it, it changed my life. I'm interested in the inflection point or the tipping point that you experienced. So you sell the business 2015, you toil, you figure out what's wrong, you get the annuity stuff going, you learn about finances, you scale your team. And at some point you decide that your acquirers are not for you anymore. What, what was that? What was the thing in your head that went, mm, this has got to change? I think there was still like, almost like when you're in a bad relationship and that partner nitpicks over stuff that you think that you've resolved. You've been to therapy, you've dealt with it, it's been cleared, we've closed it, that chapter is finished. But for somehow, you wake up next to each other in bed every morning, you're still doing the thing that you said you wouldn't do from two, three years ago. And there's, there was, um, it was probably like a moment or two, and then probably all of these things, there's that straw that broke the camel. And so I can't pinpoint it to mm. any specifics, but I think there came a moment where I just felt like, once again, 
this dirty laundry is being brought back into the current relationship when the business is in such a great place. It's on an upward trajectory. I understand the finances. I can argue with anybody over any spreadsheet to tell you why we're in a successful story. And it's not just a story for the sake of positivity. It's a story of what the reality is and where it's going. And I think that, yeah, it was just almost like this aha moment. Those light bulbs for, especially for my brain, sometimes you're showering, sometimes you're riding a bicycle, sometimes you're walking the dog. But ultimately, there comes a moment where you just, you gotta, you gotta just be brave and you just gotta acknowledge like things aren't, they don't have the ability to be fixed. Mike, this has been such an interesting conversation. So I wanna end off before I ask you to tell people about your new book and where they can find you. What have you learned from this particular near-death experience that you'll take with you in everything you do forward? For me, I feel like... I'm a lot more shielded than what I previously did. I feel like I have this extra layer of entrepreneurial armor that ultimately you're a lot stronger than you think you are. You're a lot more, it's almost like, I don't want to say it immortal because I think every business and especially when you hit arrogant levels, that's when things fail. But I think that as a human being and with all the challenges of modern day living and COVID and mental health and all that stuff, we have... We have a level of strength that is our ceiling. And I think when it comes to business and entrepreneurship, I think the, the ceiling is a lot higher than our person. And I think we're able to take it to a lot deeper spaces. When your business feels like it's in triage and it's getting the like, boom, electricity time. I think that there's much more life in your business than there is in your human being. Ah, dude, that's so great. So in closing, please tell people about your new book, where they can find you, where they can find Retroviral, anything else, the floor is yours. Thanks. I'm Mike Sharman across most social channels. My new book is called Brandalism. It's all about vandalizing brands so that you can stick it to the status quo. And effectively, Nick, we spoke about brands dying. The average S&P 500 company in the 80s was about 60 years old. Nowadays, the average age of the S&P 500 company is less than 18. So that's basically, Facebook is an old man business when it comes to the S&P 500 kind of scale. And that just, it blows my mind. So with businesses surviving less than two decades at a very successful stage, is absolutely frightening. So we need to wake up, we need to be willing to almost Banksy our brands. We always need to go in and say like, let's take the spray paint to our logo, let's go and throw the rock against the window and let's look at recreating things because there's nothing wrong with reinventing and re-evolving. And that's the way that brands are going to survive going into a post-COVID world, a post-wartime world. I mean, we don't even know what the world has in store for us. It's absolute bonkers. So for me, brandalismbook.com, Mike Sharman across the internet, across social media. Would love to be able to chat to anyone about any of these thoughts and more. So thank you for having me. Awesome, Mike. I can't wait to read your book. And I'm so excited to say that for you and Retroviral, it's not over. Thank you, sir. <laughs>